This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And we are continuing our series, Desiring the Kingdom. Uh, this week, we are coming to 1 Kings chapter 9, as we continue to talk about the contrasts between Solomon and Jesus. You say the aftermath and context of where we pick up today in 1 Kings chapter 9 um, is starting up after Solomon has just finished, you know, prayers of dedication for the temple. He offers mm-hmm. up this plea to the Lord, you know, that kind of anticipating that Israel is going to sin and do these wicked things. And Went through a of, checklist, like when we do this yeah. and when we do that yeah. and when we do the other. Like he listed them all out. Yeah. yeah, when we get famine and when we get this and rain and locusts and war i mean he he kind of nails them all and he says you know lord don't don't turn away from us and so then when we get to to chapter nine this is the lord coming back to solomon at at least at the beginning the lord comes back to solomon and says all right well i'm gonna come and give you an answer so it starts in uh, chapter 9, verse 1 through 3. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, that's an interesting interesting phrase, yeah, the, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built, putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. You know, it's interesting because as I was studying this passage, this appearance of the Lord to Solomon was some significant number of years after Solomon finished the dedication of the temple. So Solomon mm-hmm. got up and he dedicated the temple. He had that prayer that you were just referring to. And then God didn't appear to him right away. Yeah, no. So it says it took Solomon seven years to build the temple. And then it took another 13 years, which is, we talked about this, how it's interesting. He spends more time building his own house than God's house. Yeah, four times um, bigger, too, remember? Yeah, right, right. Yeah. It's massively, <laughs> massively better um, in a lot of those senses. But then it adds on, and I think it's this, you know, the beginning of First Kings 9 is inviting us to see where it's going. So it's not only that he built the house, then or the house of the Lord, then he built his own house, and then it adds, and all that Solomon desired to build. Yep. And it's like, you know, the Lord waits, like, are, are you done yet? <laughs> you know, are, are you ready to hear from me, or are you going to do this all on your own? You kind of get that feel. Why doesn't the Lord respond right as soon as the temple is dedicated? He waits and sees Solomon building all of his own pet projects before he gives an answer. It's interesting because um, some of the things that Solomon built, uh, he built the house of the Lord in his own house and the millow. Mm-hmm. And when I was looking to see what the millow was, they're not even sure. <laughs> they're not 100% sure what the millow is. It's the name of something. But the commentaries were like, yeah, it could be this. It could be that. You yeah, know, that most people think that it's actually the thing that's still there, which is kind of a staggered terrace wall. Right, terrace that gardens that we're talking about. With, yeah. with stones. It's actually – you can go there and still look at it to this day. That's the, the number one uh, belief is that it's this – these stones that form an artificial wall coming down from where David and Solomon's palace would have been. Hmm. So, yeah, when Solomon finished, it said all that he desired to build. It was not only that he did, you know, the temple, and not only did he do his own house, but he also did some landscaping projects there. That <laughs> Verse 15, it talks about the millow, uh, and you're saying that, that, that they think those are like uh, terraced gardens or some mm-hmm. sort of architectural yeah. features that are still there. Yeah, you can go there and look at them. And we walked by them on on both of our trips to Israel that we went on. Um, and you can see, I mean, if you were to pull up Google and look at the images, if you typed in Milo, most of them are going to show what I'm talking about, which is it looks like a slope of a mountain that's artificially formed with rocks that gave it some more defendable advantage. And it comes down and it looks nice. It's still there to this day. 
And, you know, it's interesting because it's, you know, it's not just that all these things that are listed, he built his house, he built all that he desired to build. And when the Lord appeared to him, it's like he just completely ignores all the other stuff that Solomon built. It's like, I have consecrated this house that you have built. doesn't say anything about the city. doesn't say anything about the wall of Jerusalem, about this millow thing or anything else. It's like Solomon builds all these different things, and God comes to him and says, okay, this temple here, that's the important one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he comes right back down to um, the important things. You know, Solomon, when he came to him, was, you know, talking about how he needs the Lord to forgive and to show mercy and to lead all these people, but it's, you know, we've, we've talked about this through this series multiple times where Solomon just increasingly seems like he's doing everything more and more for himself. Yeah. And the Lord's response that we're going to see here in a moment, the Lord's response to Solomon is really kind of doing a, a gut check response to Solomon, um, to see, you know, Solomon, like, I, I see everything you're doing. How, how sincere are you in this prayer? Yeah. Because I'm, I'm going to put the weight of your prayer, your request, back on you. Where's um, your heart, you know? Yeah. Where's yeah. your heart? Like, are you serious? Yeah. Well, let's get to that. Uh, in verse uh, verses 4 through 9, uh, God talks. God tells him, he says, And as for you, if you will walk before me, as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Hmm. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, Because they abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. That's Yikes. pretty heavy. Yikes. <laughs> you know, uh, it's pretty heavy. So, I mean, to, to boil down this conversation, you know, if you go back and you slowly kind of look through uh, the prayer of Solomon and, and chapter 8 where he's going before them and saying, hey, when we do this, please forgive your people who've sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you. And so Solomon is kind of standing as the, the spokesman of all of Israel, as the leader of the people of God, and he's pleading in anticipation of the need of mercy from God. Right. And notice what God does in response. In verses 4 and 5, when he comes back and gives this answer to Solomon, he says, all right, as for you, Solomon, let, let's mm. – you're talking on behalf of all the people of Israel – well, I want to get right down to brass tacks. You, Solomon. Yeah. If you, singular, walk before me as your as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness doing all that I've commanded you keeping my statutes, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. And so before, and from verse 6 on, then he's talking to all the people of Israel and the word you becomes plural. But in those two verses, God's response to Solomon saying, hey, will you show us mercy? Will you will you walk with us? Will you redeem us when we fall into calamity? And God comes and says to Solomon, all right, you, Solomon, I don't want you to speak on behalf of everyone. I want your heart if you walk before me. And I, that's, that's such a heavy – I mean, can you imagine God saying that to you? Mm. Um, hey, hey, Solomon, the fate of your entire kingdom – all of your subjects, all of your children, everything to come is entirely dependent. That's what it sounds like, right? Yep. Is entirely dependent on whether or not you walk as your as David, your father walked. And um, 
You know, the interesting thing about that is you read that and you go, now, wait a minute. <laughs> it's saying, you know, David obeyed all that they commanded and kept statutes and rules like, I know a couple of stories about David. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yep. But what it's saying here is like, yeah, David didn't do this perfectly. But if you walk with integrity of heart and uprightness, and that's one thing, like we talked about this last week, David had that sensitive heart that when he was called to repentance and he saw his evil in the eyes of God, it crushed him immediately. Yep. And and what God is saying is, hey, you walk before me like that to where your heart is all in. You're going to stumble. You're going to do goofy things. But if you walk before me like that, man, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. So you're asking me to show mercy. And I'm saying, Solomon, if you walk before me, you got it. Yeah. Yeah. And he doesn't. Yeah. You know, this and, – and this gets back to the gospel. It's in, – in seminary, it's what we would call federalism. And it's where the fate of the many are entirely dependent upon the leader. So, you know, in, in the scriptures, we, if we go back to the beginning in the garden, Adam and Eve sinned, but it's Adam who sinned. And in Adam's sin, all of humanity inherits the impact of that sin. We're all born selfish and corrupt and, you know, mm-hmm. fearful and angry. And we have all that that we've inherited from Adam federally, you know. Yep. And here God is coming to Solomon saying, hey, whatever you do has consequences for all the people. And the same is true of Jesus. He's our one federal head. And when he wins redemption, it flows down to us. We receive the blessing of our federal head in Christ. Mm -hmm. And so now Solomon, the deal is God saying to Solomon, hey, if you walk in a manner that's worthy of this calling, I'll bless all your people. You know, it's interesting that uh, you mentioned federalism and, and Adam and Genesis chapter three. Uh, I had a conversation with somebody once about what specifically Adam's sin was, because they they were like, you know, it seems kind of harsh. He just took a bite of some fruit, and I'm like, no, <laughs> no. His his sin was that he wanted to be like God. Mm-hmm. His sin was that he he wanted to be God's equal. He wanted to be, you know, he didn't think he needed God, and you know, that's ultimately the sin that that. Adam suffered was the sin of pride. Mm-hmm. I mean, ultimately, he his pride overwhelmed him, and and he didn't take the opportunity that he had to say no, no, Eve. Hey, you know, hang on. You know what? I, I get the I get the whole snake thing, but we're not going to eat that fruit. God said, "Don't eat the fruit." Mm-hmm. He didn't do that, you know, because it's like, oh, this is going to make me like God. I'm going to be like, oh, okay, and that was his sin. Um, and I think that in the case of Solomon, you know, we we talked about how Solomon. Um, you were saying that the people at that time might have been thinking, is Solomon the one? Is he the Messiah? Mm-hmm. Look at all these things that are being fulfilled through him. All he's building the temple and all this sort of stuff. And in the end, it was the same thing, I think, that got Solomon, which was pride. Mm-hmm. Solomon became prideful about all that he had and all that he had accomplished. And the Solomon that said, I can't do anything. I'm like a little kid was long gone. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, Adam's sin which was the sin that brought all of humanity, all of humankind after that down, is the same sin now that brings Solomon down. And it's the one sin that it's the one thing of, of, of everything you can say about the nature of Jesus when he lived on earth. The one thing that no one could ever even hint at was that he was prideful in any yeah. way. That, totally. You know, just a perfect humility, and yep. as the only one who had right to be arrogant, yes, you know, exactly. <laughs> who really, who really could walk the walk the talk? You know, uh, I can just imagine the conversation where Peter elbows John and goes, "Did you get that?" And John's like, "Give him a, just give him some slack. He's the son of God. He can have a little pride." <laughs> and yet he never did. You yeah. know, it's we we. This is a theme I think that has come through so many times in the recent podcasts. But I think it's so important is that humility. How mm-hmm. important. Being truly humble is. And to be truly humble doesn't mean that you think worse of yourself than you should. It doesn't mean that you're, that you're, you know, you're, you're being self-denigrating or anything like that. That's not what it means. True humility is, doesn't have anything to do with that. But when you, when there's no humility, the, the house is collapsing. Mm-hmm. Um, Trouble just, on the way. It's, it's so important. It is. I mean, if you walk through the Ten Commandments, you don't get 
to the fulfillment of violating any of the Ten Commandments without first walking through the door of pride. Yep. Um, every single one of them has its root in pride. Yeah. And so the moment you lose humility, man, you are susceptible to so many things. I love the definition. I can't – I think it was Lewis who had this definition where he said humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Yeah. <laughs> you know, where – where your eyes are more focused on the Lord and what he's done yes. and your neighbor and how you're going to love them. And it's it's less – you know, the things that drive us crazy is when we're inwardly focused and we're going, oh, my gosh, what do people think about me and am I doing enough and what? how am I going to make sure that my kids turn out okay and it's all on me? And that will drive you crazy. Well, all of that is rooted ultimately in pride yeah. where you're not taking God at his word or you're trying to control everything. Because why? Because you're the center of the universe. Um, but a life that's – authentically yielded into the Lord is a life of freedom. Sure. Where you're trusting him. And it's hard to come by because we're sinful idiots, you know, yeah. but but it's a beautiful thing when it happens. Think about the guy of whom Jesus said there is none greater born of women. John the Baptist. John's mm-hmm. statement, he must increase and I must decrease. Yeah, that's brilliant. It is it is brilliant. It's just like it, it, there's not a better statement for humility. Jesus yeah. increases, we decrease, you know? Yeah. Like imagine, what do you think it would be like if – I'm just trying to, to role play for a moment. If you're Solomon and you get up and you do all the religious stuff and you say all the right words and, you, you know, you're pleading with God and you're saying, hey, we need your mercy, we need you, we need you, and God comes back and says, okay, I'll give you everything you requested, but I'm going to condition it upon your obedience. Yeah. Like, can you imagine the weight of that? <laughs> well, you know, I, I myself, I'd be like jumping off the top of the castle or something. I, I would be like, <laughs> I just seriously, I mean, that would be that would be something where I could I I would feel like I couldn't breathe, you know, with that with that kind of responsibility. Yeah. I mean, if you're thinking through the, the whole fate of your family, your nation, your kingdom, your throne, everything that your dad worked for, um, now is up to you. That had to have been a crushing weight on Solomon. Yeah. And it doesn't seem like he tried very hard to live up to it. No. You know, it's only because the next chapter we find that, I mean, he just overtly is falling apart. Yeah. And it's almost like he heard that and went, I can't do it. I'm done. Yep. You know, in um, for a penny, in for a pound. Let's just go here. You know, I'm like, <laughs> okay. Uh, now the, the latter half of this from verse six, on through verse 9 where you say that God then starts speaking to the nation. You mm-hmm. becomes plural. Um, I, I thought this was kind of cool. You brought this up earlier this morning during our time of our staff devotions, personal worship. That's really kind of a prophetic statement. You know, it's a it's a prophetic thing because, it yes, it happened to the temple back then, but I thought it was cool how you brought out how that happened a second time when mm-hmm. Jesus was on the cross outside of the city. Yeah, it's it's absolutely wonderful. So we talked about that federalism, right? Sure. So it would be like, you know, when God goes to Solomon and says, hey, everybody's blessing is dependent upon your obedience. I'm sure not only Solomon was going, what? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but those who knew Solomon and who knew how he was already starting to wavering were like, oh, we're in for it, yep. you know. Imagine if God came and said, hey, the blessing of the nation is for you to find somebody in politics that <laughs> actually seeks me. We'd all go, oh, forget yeah. about it. Yeah, yeah, we're done. It's over. We're done. Um, but all of that stuff that is laid down at Solomon, he couldn't be the federal head. He couldn't be the Messiah. He he failed. He was not going to be the one to deliver Israel ultimately. But what this is looking forward to now is I mean, I mean, imagine here's here's God speaking to Solomon, saying, "Hey, if I can find a king, now hear this. If I can find a king who has integrity and uprightness, who keeps my commandments and my statutes and my rules, then I'll establish an everlasting throne over Israel." Well, you don't find that. I mean, the whole Old Testament is filled with one failure after the next, right? And you get to the New Testament, and all of a sudden you find the king who followed all the rules, who had perfect integrity of heart, who was perfectly upright, who followed every statute, every rule, was perfectly kind, the personification of humility, the God of all power becoming weak as a man to 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 love and to pour out mercy. And so – Jesus fulfills perfectly this call that God gave to Solomon. 
to establish that everlasting kingdom. But the second half of, of this part, it says, when he says, if you fail to do that, then this house will become a heap of ruins. He's talking about the temple. And he says, listen to this, everyone passing by it will be astonished. Like they will go by it and look at how awful it looks and how it's destroyed. Here's this holy thing that's now desecrated and they're going to hiss and they're going to mock it saying, why has the Lord done this to the land and to this house? They'll say, because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. Now that prophetic word you know, Israel is going to turn away from God. The yep. kings do unbelievably wicked things after Solomon, really wicked things. And in 586, God says, okay, I'm done with you. He allows the Babylonian army to come in to destroy Jerusalem, to tear it down, to tear the temple down and burn it to the ground. And no doubt people walked by Jerusalem in shambles and mocked it. Yep. But this is fulfilled in a far more amazing way. When Jesus, when Jesus is talking about his death and resurrection, what does he say? Tear this temple down and I'll rebuild it in three days. And so then when he, the, the only perfectly obedient one, right, who fulfills all of this for our mm-hmm. blessing, he then goes to the cross and the temple of God and human flesh hangs on a cross and that temple is going to be destroyed. Mm-hmm. And guess what happens? Everyone who passes by is astonished, Mm -hmm. and they hiss, Mm -hmm. and they hurl insults at him, and they mock him and claim that God obviously has forsaken this guy because if God loved him, then he should be able to come down from the cross. And in a very real sense, Jesus takes on the responsibility of Solomon as the perfect king who can fulfill this so that God's blessing falls on all the subjects of the king, which is you and I. Thank the Lord for his work on our behalf, right? Mm-hmm. But then, because of our wickedness, the temple also gets destroyed. And everyone who walked by that temple, our Savior, hanging on a cross, are astonished, and they hiss at him, and they mock him. And that's also to our benefit. He takes all the shame. He takes all the cursing. He takes all the punishment. And he gives away all the perfect righteousness. All this is fulfilled in Christ in a far more beautiful way because Solomon is not our savior. He couldn't, he couldn't handle the weight of it. Yeah. When you consider that what Jesus said, tear down this temple and in three days I'll build it back up again, and how incredulous the people were toward him when he said that, mm-hmm. which obviously it's because they weren't – obviously they didn't understand what he was saying, but also – you wonder sometimes how it was that that more people who were devout Jews didn't understand it, didn't follow mm-hmm. him. Um, I just don't. I don't know. There's just when when you look at all these parallels and all these connections, I'm thinking, why didn't more of you see it? Mm-hmm. And I think that's honestly, it's because in our hearts, and this is this might be a little bit of a rabbit trail tangent for me, but. You know, every once in a while when I'm doing the essentials class, which is something that we offer here at Rio, we focus on the gospel. And one of the things that I emphasize, and every time I teach it, it feels convicting because I find myself doing this again and again. Mm -hmm. But we view religion, we view the gospel as being transactional. In other words, like, okay, we have this arrangement and God wants me to do this. And if I put in my deeds, then he gives me this. And, you know, I can go to heaven so long as I say this and believe this and And God is not interested in a transactional type of faith. He wants relationship. The whole point of why he became a man and died on a cross is to make sure that we could be with him forever. It's not to give us an escape hatch, but he's really not that interested in where we go after that. Like, he loves us. And so what we tend to do when we minimize religion to just checklists and transactions, and if I do this, then God does this, um, we miss out on the heart of a God where Scripture says that he rejoices over us with singing, that he surrounds us with praise, that he, he longs to hear us in prayer, that it actually that it thrills his heart when we turn our eyes and our adoration to him. Like he is, he is infinitely invested in us 
It's this infinite pool of love is directed at each and every one of us. And we tend to take a God who has become a man who died on a cross for me, not just everybody, me. And we reduce it to just, well, you know, if I do this, then – and we make it transactional and it rips the heart out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what happens with the temple. It had become this place where you go and you do your thing. You do your little religious duties and that's not at all the Lord's heart behind that temple. This was a place where he could go and dwell in the midst of his people, not as, you know, look at me in all my glory, you know, that's I think that's part of it, but it's God wanting to be in the midst of his people. He loves us. He wants mm-hmm. to be with us. And the thing that drives him crazy, it's about the temple and the way that it was treated, is there was zero, zero regard for the love of the Lord, the worship of the Lord, the respecting of who he is and what he's done for us and how much his affection has turned on us, we just turn it into a transactional thing. Mm. And, you know, I, it's, it's actually interesting. Caleb, who's my oldest son, he's 12 years old, so he's just – he's in middle school and he came home with this question. He's like, yeah, Dad, you, you know, Jesus the, – the Bible says that he never sinned, right? And I'm like, yeah. And he says – well, you know that, and I knew where he was about to go. He says, you know that, that passage where it talks about him going into the temple and getting really angry and chasing people out and turning over tables? And I was like, yeah. And he says, that that seems like sin to me. And I was like, okay, well, hold on a minute. Let's <laughs> re- re- reverse the tape. You know, one, he's God, so he's entitled to that. But then – and it was, it was this conversation, and I'd never thought about it until the words came out of my mouth – but I said, you know, what was happening at that temple is you had all these people who were trying to rip off foreigners and trying to rip off the poor, and they had these exchange rates on money because you had to buy a particular type of coin in order to be able to buy the sacrificial animals to be able to worship God, right? And so all these people are being exploited and turned away. And when you see Jesus get angry, it's not it's not just, oh, my goodness, the poor are being exploited. That's absolutely part of what made him angry. But it's you're preventing my bride from making it to me. Mm-hmm. And I told him, I said, you know, I want you to imagine a husband. I want you to imagine that mom is on her way to see me at home or I'm on my way to see her at home. And somebody puts roadblocks up and they won't let me through. And they're trying to do everything they can to prevent me from getting to her in an evil, wicked way just to prevent me to get to her. If I really love your mom, what should be my reaction to that? It's going to be anger. It's going to drive me crazy that you're doing anything that keeps me away from the one who I love with all my heart. Right. Like, And that's the heart of Jesus. When he starts flipping over tables, it's because you're preventing his bride from being able to get to him. That's how wild his love is. And I said, Caleb, that should be a great comfort to each and every one of us. Why? Because that shows how much it would enrage the Lord if anything should keep you from being able to be with him. Mm-hmm. It's the same rage toward that idea that put Jesus on the cross. It's anger at sin. It's anger at death. It's this outrage that this is the way the world is, that he would go to the depths of hell to overthrow it. That's how much he wants to be with us. And there's great comfort in knowing that my God responds like that when anyone should try to keep me or my wife or my kids or other people away from him. That's how loving he is. That's a really good explanation of the of the flipping over tables. Um, I like that. I, I've heard you say that before, and I'm glad we got that into. I don't know if I don't know if it's been on one of our podcast episodes before, but I think that's something that can stick with people because I do think that's one of the stories from Jesus's life where people go, "Well, Jesus had a temper," <laughs> not the same way that you and I have tempers, right? So, you know, one uh, of the things that Gage told me, sorry to no, it's okay to keep going there, sure. But and I'd never thought about this until Doctor Gage shared this. But all the things that Jesus is doing, you know, throwing over the tables, he'll be sold for silver. He breaks out a whip. Well, the the true temple will be whipped. whipped. Yeah, you know, it's it's everything that he does in that temple. He's trying to purge sin from the temple, right? Right. What's going to happen on the cross is he's going to be whipped, and the real temple, 
the temple of God in Jesus himself, in the flesh, is going to be utterly defiled, and then he's going to be judged. So mm-hmm. everything that that he does to Herod's temple when he goes into the courts and starts doing all that stuff, sure. he literally takes on our, my defilement. And my defilement is in the temple, and God pours his wrath out on that and destroys the temple. Hmm. <laughs> it's, it's, it's prophetic in some sense of what is going to happen to him. Yeah. And they did, you know, and they did mock him. You know, if you're, if you're God, come down from the cross and save yourself. Yeah, mm-hmm. It's, um, so then we have, uh, the latter half of chapter nine here where it, the heading in the English standard version just says Solomon's other acts. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> oh, so, uh, verse 10 says at the end of 20 years in which Solomon had built the uh, two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house. And Hiram, king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress timber and gold as much as he desired. King Solomon gave to Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. But when Hiram came from Tyre to see the cities that Solomon had given him, they did not please him. Therefore, he said, what kind of cities are these that you have given me, my brother? So they are called the land of Cabal to this day. Hiram had sent to the king 120 talents of gold. Um, this passage here, this, these four verses here, the first thing that occurred to me when I read this was he wants to take the wealth and give nothing back. Like he gave him mm-hmm. the worst cities that were available. These were described as being like border cities. Um, cabal, I guess, is a word that means like worthless or something yeah, like good that. Good for nothing, yeah. Good, good for nothing, yeah. Um, so it's like he took all these things from Hiram and then what did he give him? Well, he gave him some, some pieces of land he didn't want, basically. Yeah. But it, it not only shows Solomon's yeah, I'm just, I don't want to use too strong a word because I feel like we really beat up on Solomon. But, um, and, and we're every bit as corrupt. No, no question. Um, but Solomon is actually wicked in two senses here. You know, he's, ex- he's clearly exploiting Hiram. He knows he's got an upper hand militarily, power wise. And so he's just exploiting, <laughs> exploiting poor Hiram, taking all of his cedar and cypress and timber, gold, all that. And then he turns around and he gives 20 cities in the land of Galilee to Hiram. And so it's like he's not only being wicked to Hiram by giving him these, you know, 20 cities that have no real industry and no ability to grow anything and they're just kind of a bad gift. But, but this is really an offense to God because this land is not Solomon's to give. Yeah. You know, the Lord gave Israel the promised land and in it, was the land of Galilee, and now Solomon is thinking, oh, this is mine to give, and so I'm going to start partitioning up the kingdom, the land that God has given to us, and I'm going to sell it for my own wealth. And it's like, ooh, like, no, 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 no. Yeah. You know, and it's especially grievous, I think, with the case of Hiram, because if you remember when we were introduced to Hiram, what was that, back in chapter 5? Uh, chapter 5, verse 1 says, Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father, for Hiram always loved David. Mm-hmm. So Hiram reached out to Solomon, and I'm sure that, like you say, I'm sure that Hiram would enjoy favorable relations with Israel. Everybody wants to be, everybody wants the big kid on the playground to be their friend and not the bully that's chasing them. <laughs> right. I, I get that. But the scriptures tell us why Hiram reached out to Solomon, why he said, let me help you, because he loved David. Yeah. And then Solomon takes advantage of this guy. It just – it's really bothersome. Yeah. It's it's unscrupulous. Yeah, it is. You know, and this, this gets to the thing that Solomon is presented in so many conflicting ways as you're going through the scripture. So – and this is one of them where like – you know, people who work with Solomon, who work for Solomon, um, by and large, you know, if you're at a, if you're not in the inner circle, the inner circle of Solomon loves Solomon, and the people who know of Solomon from a, a long distance who've never had to work with him love Solomon. 
But when you get to chapter 12, you get the whole nation, all the northern tribes come to him and they say, we don't – you know, they, they tell Solomon's kid, if you're anything like your dad, when they tell Rehoboam, Solomon's son, if you're anything like your dad, if you treat us like he treated us, then, then we don't want any part of this kingdom anymore. He was – he used us. You know, we have no share in Israel. And then you see the same thing, like Hiram feels that same way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Solomon took really, cl- really good care of those that were close to him. But he, it seems like he just exploited those that had no means to do anything back to him. You know, it's he's got this kind of bifurcated life where yeah. some people think that he's the greatest thing since sliced bread. But then other people who have dealings with him from a distance who work for him are like, ah, I don't ever want to do business with that guy again. Yeah. Like I can look at. Somebody like a Warren Buffett, for example, and I can admire his 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 frugality and his clever investments and his you know like he generates wealth and these all the and if I was one of his children, you know, he's not going to give him his whole fortune, but I'm I guess when it's time for him to depart, they're going to be well taken care of. Mm-hmm. But you you often wonder if you're one of those companies that he comes in and sort of takes over. What do you think of him? And suddenly Berkshire Hathaway owns your company. And now you got to do things the way that, that Mr. Buffett thinks they ought to be done. And I'm, and I, and mind you, I'm speaking completely out of turn. I don't know that he does anything bad at all. It might be wonderful all the way through. But I guess what I'm talking about is that there's that intermediate layer where you have some contact, you have some responsibility, they've got some authority over you, but they don't even see you. They don't mm-hmm. know you. They don't notice you. Yep. Um, that's the layer that suffers, I think. Yeah. And I mean, you, you can look at – I remember like a few years ago, um, there was a lot of young – people who were young who made made it famous and you know, largely in entertainment. You know, people like Britney Spears or Lindsay Lohan or Justin Bieber. Mm-hmm. And they would come into wealth and fame and power in a hurry and they, their inner circle is all yes people. You know, the people who would never confront them on bad behavior, who would never say no, who would never, you know, stage an intervention to keep them from, you know, destroying their own lives. And and but then you had on the outside, the far extremes, you had all these people that were adoring fans and put up posters in their bedrooms, you know, and people just lifted them up to, you know, adulation and everything else. But then there's the people who are semi close to them who see the dysfunction going on, and they're all they're all taking note of it. Mm-hmm. But there's something to human nature where it's like it's so many people from a distance. You can you know we talked about Ravi last time. I was one of those guys who put him on a pedestal. You know, yeah. Yeah. wrongly so. Yeah. But it's like I thought he walked on water, and those closest to him thinks he walks on water. But then you get a little bit outside of his inner circle, but not quite far enough to where it's, you know, all the packaged products on TV or radio kind of stuff. And the people who were dealing with him, all of a sudden, all these cracks and things start emerging. And I think the same is true with Solomon. Those yeah. who were real far away from him, who had no interaction, thought he was the greatest. Those who were really close to him thought that he was great because he took care of them. But those that he worked alongside felt exploited. Yeah. No bueno. Yeah. I heard an interview with uh, Dave Grohl. Do you know who Dave Grohl is? He's the guy from Foo Fighters. Mm-hmm. Uh, he used to be the drummer in Nirvana. And now he's like the rock and roll dad. He's like this sort of <laughs> – well, he is. He's, he seems like – you know, not going to not gonna ascribe any virtue to him that he shouldn't have. But he just seems like a regular guy. Seems like a guy mm-hmm. you want to have a barbecue with, hang out of the pool, you know, the kids play. It's just, it just seems like really just such a normal guy. Like his, yeah. his, his success just hasn't affected him and hasn't touched him at all. And so a lot of times he gets in these interviews where the interviewer wants to ask him questions about some other celebrity who's been a bit of a train wreck. And <clears throat> they asked him about Justin Bieber. And I thought his answer was fascinating. They, they were talking to him about, you know, what had gone on with Justin Bieber and how he had struggled early in his like he had he came in with this sort of, you know, super squeaky clean, uh, you know, reputation. And then there was this big train wreck and a big fire. And then and then it seems like he's kind of come out the other side of it. Yeah, you know, seems to yeah. he really has seems to, you know, he's, he survived and which you have to give him you know props for. And he seems to be somebody who's seeking the Lord in faith now. I mean, I'm impressed by a lot of the things I hear him say. And I hope it's all true. And I hope it's all real. And, and I hope his soul is with God. And that's great, you know. 
Um, but Dave Grohl said the most interesting thing. When they asked him about Justin's problems earlier, he goes, hey, you gave a 16-year-old $100 million. What did you think was going to happen? <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a perfect answer. You gave a 16-year-old $100 million. What did you think he was going to do? Yeah. I'm, yeah. Not, I'm not so sure if you gave $100 million to this 42-year-old, it would have it would much, happen much better of an ending. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. That's true. I'd like to think so. but yeah, It's funny. I, a couple times now in our personal worship, I've, I've used that quote from Augur in Proverbs 30, mm-hmm. I think it is, where it talks about – don't let me have too little or too much. I don't want to have too much that I become fat and mm-hmm. don't think of you, Lord, nor too little that I steal and profane your name. Mm-hmm. There have been a lot of times where I have been really feeling blessed, not just because the Lord meets all my needs, but because the Lord meets my needs and not too much more. Yeah. I take that as a blessing also. I haven't been tested with great wealth because I don't know that I'd pass the test. Yeah, you know it's interesting that that section where Augur is saying, "Don't give me too much, and don't give me too little." You know, he says, "Give me." In that passage, he says, "Give me my daily bread." And right. Jesus, in the the Sermon on the Mount, when he teaches us the Lord's Prayer, he's quoting that. So you know, you may never have thought of that, but when you say, "Give us this day our daily bread," you're not just asking for bread to eat you're asking for limitations yes give me daily bread yes. don't give me too much that's yep. the context of that prayer I remember, yeah. I remember sharing that in one of our wednesday night bible studies and and somebody says he's listening to that prayer <laughs> <laughs> yeah and uh but i do i feel god has met our needs he's been faithful mm-hmm. to my wife and i and our family and he's given us enough to, to be very comfortable, and we've tried to be generous as we can. I, but I feel so grateful that he's not inundated yeah. us because I'm like, man, that would—that's a burden in and of itself. Yeah, I love you know it's it is such it's a wonderful thing when you come across somebody who is wealthy, you know, who makes a lot of money or has a lot of money, and the wealth is not their god, and so they're free to be generous with it, and they do wonderful things with it. Mm-hmm. That's not most people, you know. One of the one of the messages of the story of Solomon is, you know, when he starts and he says, you know, like we talked about, when he says, "I'm but a little child," he's, you know, "Help me, I can't do this." That's when he's in the healthiest condition of his life. Yep. But there is an inverse relationship with the amount of blessing that Solomon receives from the hand of God and his spiritual health. It's an yeah. inverse relationship. The more he gets, the more power he gets, the more wealth he gets, the more wives he gets, the more destroyed yeah. his relationship with God becomes. So now we come to the verse 15 where it says, and this is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon drafted to build the house of the Lord and his own house and the Millow and the wall of Jerusalem and Hazor and Megiddo and Gezer. What was interesting to me here, we've talked a little bit about Solomon's approach to forced labor we and everything that was wrong with that. What was really interesting to me is what occurred here, what popped up here next in verse 16 where it says, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and captured Gezer and burned it with fire and had killed the Canaanites who lived in the city and had given it as dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. So Solomon rebuilt Gezer. Now, one of the things that we've talked about that was part of the downfall of Israel was that they did not do what God had told them to do when he gave them the land, which was go in there and, and well, as hard as it is to hear, wipe out everybody. It's like, this is your land. I've given it to you. Go in and, and get rid of everybody. And they didn't. Mm-hmm. And I look at this and I'm like, gee, Pharaoh did. <laughs> yeah. You know, Pharaoh did what they wouldn't do. He When he went in and captured the city, he got rid of everybody and, and said, here, Solomon, fix it. And, you know, one of the interesting things is, you know, this this story is coming along. There, We already know that there are Canaanites that had come to faith and they're sure. grafted into the people of Israel. Sure. Um, so when the Bible is speaking, it's not necessarily – it's not speaking just primarily among, you know, racial or nationalistic lines. It's talking largely about faith. It's like – you know, when God gives Solomon instructions not to marry foreign women, it's not because he doesn't like foreigners. He doesn't want him to go in and 
and kind of create hybrid cultures to where he's chasing after their gods. That's his concern. It's not about race or nationality. Right. And one of the things that you see with the Canaanites, you know, like Rahab is a is a Canaanite. She's sure. grafted into the royal line. That that God has no issue with that. But it's the Canaanite practices that are absolutely and utterly repulsive. Um Wicked, wicked worship practices um, that the Lord wants to remove from the land because he knows what ends up happening is when Israel takes over this land and the Canaanites and the Amorites or whoever are still populating the land, the Israel doesn't transform them to become more righteous. They transform Israel to become more wicked. Yeah. And they begin to act – it's like you know we talk about in church. You know We begin to act like the world – rather than living as a light before the world so that they will be transformed into sons and daughters of light. You know, that's that's the idea. And God knew that the the potential of Israel to be a bright shining light to the world would depend on his people being faithful. Yeah. And that would not happen with all these worldly influences that they're still hanging on to. It's like it's exactly what you're talking about. You know, in my life when I came to conversion, there were certain things that that I said, well, I can't give this up. I can't. I'm, I'll, I'll be a Christian, but I have to be able to hold on to this. And if you go to God saying that, you've just revealed that God is not your true God. Right. You know, if you're saying, hey, I'll worship God so long as I have this, whatever the this is, that's your real God. Yeah. That's what you will not, you know, drop your allegiance to. That's your ultimate. If you will not worship God unless you have this, then God is not your God. Yeah. This is. Mm-hmm. So the rest of the chapter, and, and I don't think we've got time to really read through the rest of the chapter, but it's, it really just kind of goes on to talk about Solomon's increasing wealth and, and how things are going. Uh, just the, everything keeps increasing basically mm-hmm. for Solomon in terms of, of, of his wealth and his holdings and everything else. There is something that, that I wanted to ask you about though. Um, all the way down in verse 25, uh, there's the verse 25 says that three times a year Solomon used to offer up burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar that he built to the Lord, making offerings with it before the Lord. So he finished the house. Something about that, just the way it said three times a year Solomon used to offer up. I'm not sure. Am I reading something into it with this past tense? Like, is there, is it trying to tell us something about Solomon's personal walk with the Lord? Is there something that Solomon suddenly stops doing here? You know, the way that I've always understood this passage, I, like, I, I guess there's the way that you're talking about, like, he used to, but he no longer does. I mean, is right. it, is it like his faith cooled? Maybe. Um, I've never read it that way. The way that I've always understood this verse is that Solomon, one, he's sacrificing burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, which if he is doing them directly, then he's violating the law, actually, because a priest was the one who had to do those things. But then you think, okay, is he, does he have the priest sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings? But then it says this burning incense before the Lord along with them, which gives you the impression he's doing it. Right? Right. Like, it wouldn't say a priest burnt incense for him. Right. Because that wasn't something that you did. It wasn't like an offering that one person made. So he's burning incense. So it's, it's another, it's another commentary on the pride that has now overtaken Solomon. As king, he's saying, yeah, 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 I know, Lord, that you say only the priests should do these things, but I'm now going to take those on. I'm worthy of those too. And so I'm going to burn offerings and I'm going to give fellowship offerings and I'm going to burn incense before the Lord, which if he's going into the holy place of the temple, the the first room of the temple, which is where you would burn incense, then this is a really arrogant dismissal of what God had said was reserved for the priests. Mm. Um, So it just reveals, again, Solomon is falling apart in his pride. Yeah. I think you mentioned something to that effect that when he put Abiezar out and just like the way that Solomon was doing certain things, I think you even hinted at it then. You're like, it's kind of like Solomon is is kind of stepping in and doing doing the priest's job here at a few times. Yeah. I mean, later on, you think of uh, Isaiah 6, the famous passage where Isaiah is called and it talks about in the year King Uzziah died. Mm-hmm. Well, King Uzziah, who's going to come after Solomon? 
Um, he's going to be in the line. He dies when he goes into the temple and feels like he's worthy to go in the temple and do these kinds of things that are reserved only for the priest, and God strikes him with leprosy and he dies. Um, so the fact that Solomon got away with it, you know, it sounds like he was doing things that were pretty similar to Uzziah, who was – Uzziah was like super bold where he was like, who does God think that he is telling me, the king, that I can't go into the temple? You know, yeah. he had that kind of an attitude. Um, so is Solomon there? Gosh. Yeah. I mean, it it just seems like the more blessing he gets, the more he loses what's truly – he. He values the blessings more than the blesser, and yeah. everything begins to unravel. Yeah. Well, I think we're going to have to let that stand as our last word on First Kings chapter nine, and unfortunately, it's not a happy word. <laughs> yeah. Can we think of a happy word? I, I let's, don't know. Let's think of a happy word. Is there a happy word? Um, I am in- just really grateful that I have a better federal head than Solomon. Yeah. He could not carry those burdens. None of us can carry those burdens, and thankfully, the Lord has given us a better king. Yeah. who's come into this world, who is a perfect prophet, who's a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, if that means anything to you, and he's the perfect prophet who has carried these burdens for us. Yeah, And let's be honest. Let's have a little bit of sympathy for Solomon. No one oh, could totally. have carried that burden. No, Nobody other than Jesus could have carried that burden. Um, you know, we, we have, we have certainly held forth Solomon as an example in a negative sense as we've come into the latter part of, of these chapters here, the latter part of his life. Um, but man, nobody could have, you know, that's, that's, I mean, that's why Jesus had to come because none of us could. The point of the Old Testament is to whet your appetite for the one who's going to do it perfectly. So when you read David, you know, there's many wonderful things about David, but at the point of the Bible is you can't set your heart on David. He failed. Yeah. You can't set your heart on Solomon. You can't set your heart on Abraham or Moses or any of these great figures who we should lift up as heroes and, and celebrate the good things that they do. But ultimately, every one of them could not rescue us. Yeah, It's to set up our hunger for the one who came, yeah. who did it perfectly. And then gives us the salvation, the blessing that Solomon was praying for, that God said, hey, Solomon, if you can do this, then I'll bless your people. Jesus did it for us. And now God says, I will bless your people. Yeah. Amen. Well, we'll let that stand as our last word on 1 Kings 9, because that's a better word. Thank you. I like that word better. I like that word better. (laughs) We hope that you've enjoyed your time with us, that it's been profitable for you. We hope you've enjoyed this series, Desiring the Kingdom, which is our series of podcasts that are companions to the series of messages being preached right now on Sunday mornings at Rio Vista Community Church. Um, If something that we've said today has provoked uh, a question or a comment that you'd like to make, we invite you to correspond with us. Our email address is outofwater at Church. Church.com. That's R-I-O Vista Church.com, where you can also find all the back episodes of Out of Water at Rio Vista Church.com slash Out of Water. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or in our Rio Vista Church smartphone app, which is for free and available at an app store near you. Sam and I'll be back next week with First Kings chapter 10 and the Queen of Sheba. Most interesting. We look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.